0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards, and as I pledged quite a short time ago, here is the next one. In fact, I called the start of this new series, Series 2, which implied that there was a planned break between this series and the last series. It wasn't planned, to be honest, I just got too busy, but thank you very much, those of you who tweeted me or alerted me one way or another to say that uh, they were Pleased to have this podcast back. So here I am again, and there's a lot to get through. Politics is so fast moving at the moment, whilst at the same time being static in a curious way. We're going to have a new Prime Minister very shortly. Uh, Labour is embroiled with its own familiar traumas, and we're going to look at both of those this week. But beforehand, just a reminder first of all, thanks all of those of you who came to the various rock and roll politics live shows at king's place in london some packed events there uh, over the summer and more to come in the autumn but before that at the edinburgh festival i'm there from august the 12th to august the 24th so if you're there i hope you come along to the live shows Uh, they're going to be different each day So you have to come 14 times. And uh, if uh, if you're not planning to be in Edinburgh, why don't you drive up or get a train from wherever you are in the United Kingdom just to come along? What I find interesting about the leadership contest is that there was quite a lot of complaining early on about the lack of scrutiny, Boris Johnson refusing to put himself up for much scrutiny. I don't blame him. Leadership contests are... Not a time for intense scrutiny if you're a candidate. All you want to do is win, and every move must be made with that. In mind and putting yourself up for endless interviews or whatever is not the purpose. It's rather like the sort of browbeating in parts of the media, especially the BBC, after the 2016 referendum. Could we have done more? Should we have analysed what we mean by balance? Should we have scrutinised some of the claims with greater scepticism? I'm afraid these things aren't public education exercises and it's the same with leadership contests and I don't blame Boris Johnson. He started as favourite, he ends as favourite. Why jeopardise the chance of seizing the crown by putting yourself up for too many interviews and as we saw when he did so with Andrew Neil. It was hardly a triumph, at least not for Boris Johnson, in that, again, his mastery of detail was, to put it, politely called into question. It's very common. Leadership contests are up and people get really excited. Oh, wow, this is going to be a great time to test the candidates. It's our duty to test the candidates. And actually, that opportunity never really properly arises because the candidates want to win. And the only Audience that matters is the membership of the party that has the vote. When um, I've talked before, it, it kind of comparing some of the lightweight candidates of modern leadership contests with the 1976 Labour leadership contest, where you had whatever you thought of their politics, real heavyweight standing Callaghan, Healy, Crossland, Jenkins, Ben, Foote, big, big figures. But it's interesting that Callaghan, who won that contest, and the vote was only with Labour MPs then, he didn't give a single interview throughout that leadership contest. The others were racing around, making their cases all over the place. Callaghan didn't. He knew he was favourite to win. His appeal was to be calm and steady, so he didn't open him up to any scrutiny at all. And I suspect with Johnson, assuming it is him that wins the scrutiny and accountability clicks in once he's got the crown. A leadership contest is not when it happens. And then I assume, although it's not certain, that the scrutiny will be intense. It seems to me that the focus of all attention from September onwards will be the House of Commons. It's quite a shift, this. I keep on bumping into people who say to me, oh, wow, can't wait for the party conferences. The party conferences will be epic this early autumn. I doubt if they will be. It's the House of Commons where the Brexit drama will intensify. And indeed, it's been the House of Commons where much of the drama has played out with those dramatic defeats for Theresa May's deal. Three calamitous, from her perspective, heavy defeats for her Brexit deal and now Johnson becomes Prime Minister in that same House of Commons, that same hung Parliament, pledged to get the UK out by October the 31st and that provides a kind of level of uh, scrutiny that is massively intense and much needed because during this leadership campaign Boris Johnson, for all his reputation as a charismatic communicator hasn't really crafted phrases or arguments that make the case for his vision of Brexit, whatever it is, it lacks precision anyway. There is this pledge to get the UK out by October the 31st, but that, like so much in British politics, is about process and sequencing, not about the substance, he has said uh, things like we have just got to get on with it just get on with it let's let's do it get this incubus off our back make it sound like a burden that has to be removed as if the uk is carrying these sacks saying brexit and the argument in favor of speedy departure in the current context anyway is that the sacks Of Brexit weighing the country down will go. But that of course is not an argument about the substance of why it will all be so much better once this happens on October the thirty first, a no deal or a vaguely defined new deal. It's the same incidentally with Nigel Farage. The rise of Boris Johnson in the immediate context of the leadership contest relates, of course, to the success of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party. But again, Farage's appeal is about process or the alleged lack of process. The most potent word in his armoury is betrayal. They've all let us down. We had the referendum three years ago. They still haven't delivered. It is a betrayal. But the case, or his precise case, of why the UK will flourish in a no deal, what he calls a clean Brexit, is not clear. And it is not really made by him. He's very powerful at making the betrayal argument. And that term, betrayal, is the most dangerous and emotive in British politics. But I listened to his phone-in. He's a natural broadcaster, Nigel Farage. And it was smart on some levels for LBC to bring him in as a presenter. He is a natural. But scrutiny is not what happens in his phone-in. The phone-in, I'm, I'm hooked on it. And I can tell you it goes quite often something along these lines. Uh, Nigel Farage, here. I'm now joined by Lee and Kent. Kent, what's your point tonight? Hello, Nigel. Hello, Lee. Uh, Nigel, I just want to s- say this. There is only one person in the United Kingdom who can save us now, Nigel. Who's that, Lee? You, Nigel. Uh, sorry that both Lee and Nigel sound the same, but you know what I mean. And then Nigel pauses for a bit because he realises he needs to put a bit of balance in to this. So he said, "Are you sure, Lee? What about Boris Johnson?" No, Nigel, only you. Uh, fair point, Lee. Fair point. And that is how the phone-in uh, develops. It's it's very addictive listening, but it's not actually scrutinising the figure who has, in some respects, reworked the British political landscape. And that is why, or one of the many reasons, why the next few weeks and months are so hard to predict when you have the leading advocates for possibly a no-deal Brexit not explaining precisely how this is going to come about, or what will happen following it, or why it will lead us to the promised land, that in itself becomes part of the fuzziness. Boris Johnson and indeed Jeremy Hunt have both said the backstop is out under any circumstances. In one of their more recent debates, they said no to a time limit, no to a unilateral mechanism for getting out of the backstop, it must go. And that is a pretty hardline starting point for a negotiation. But I still think, in the end, and he's actually kind of said it, Johnson aches for a deal. When he said no deal was a million to one, million to one, no deal, he was revealing, I think, his internal thinking and almost hope that it will be a million to one. He is smart enough to know that to be a Prime Minister, that takes the UK out on no deal, will be a Prime Minister that, for a short time anyway, and possibly for more than a short time, will be presiding over a degree of turmoil, and political as well as economic, because there will be some uh, turmoil in the Tory party at the very top, I suspect, if the no deal goes through. We know there will be ex-ministers, Philip Hammond and others, who will have tried to stop no deal. So if it goes ahead in spite of them, others, Rory Stewart, becoming a sort of interesting and hyperactive political figure, I think there will be kind of epic waves of uncertainty in parts of the Conservative Party. And there will be, for sure, practical logistical problems right at the start. And he knows this, which is why he must... Well, he said it. He wants a deal. But his theory, Boris Johnson's, that a deal becomes more likely because he has threatened no deal. And no doubt we will hear a lot about work being put in to get ready for no deal right away. I wouldn't be surprised if he appoints a high-profile figure just to get Britain ready for no deal. He sees the threat of that, the threat of not coming up with the money for the EU, as a mechanism which will make them change, the EU, and make them change speedily. Because if there is a new deal, it would have to be in place early in October. It will have to go through all the legislative processes in the UK and the European Parliament by the October summit and, of course, certainly by October the 31st. So all this will have to be done in a matter of weeks. And it's not at all clear how. The EU go on holiday in August. Boris Johnson plans to see Macron and Merkel at their holiday homes. That will be quite a sort of holiday break for Merkel and Macron, both of whom are clearly exhausted. But that won't be a mechanism to bring about a new deal. It will have to be much more formalised than a chat on a deck chair, Macron's holiday hideaway. So it's not at all clear how it would happen, but clearly... He wants it to happen. And these ex-Tory ministers, with the exception of Amber Rudd, who has discovered a flexibility when it comes to no deal, on the assumption that that will keep her in the cabinet, they are resolved to stopping it. People like Philip Hammond have become unlikely rebellious figures. I call him our... Shea Guevara, England's Shea Guevara, posters of Philip Hammond on pro-European teenagers' bedroom walls as he attempts to block no deal. And so it's going to be an extraordinary period of time where, if we are heading towards that option of no deal, careering towards it, there will be an attempt to stop it. And there will be a large bit of Boris Johnson that doesn't want to go with a no deal. And yet he has trapped himself in to October the 31st. And as I say, the leadership contest, for understandable reasons, they want to win. They're not doing a public education exercise has been more about targets. Let's get out on October the 31st, the people versus parliament and all this kind of stuff. But the how and the form and the arguments in favour, we await. And they will be scrutinised Andrew Neil style in studios, but also in the House of Commons. And although this House of Commons lacks many big figures, There are enough of them for a new prime minister to be seriously challenged. It's also, it seems to me, with the Labour Party anti-Semitism saga, a series of issues which are partly to do with process again. I've given up trying to understand the story, but I make a couple of observations about it. The first is, I remember when Tony Benn was campaigning to be deputy leader of the Labour Party in 1981, and he was, as ever, a passionate, brilliant orator, but he was always by inclination, upbringing and character, polite, good-humoured and a lot of his followers weren't. There was a famous time when they shouted down Dennis Healy at a rally and Ben got under enormous pressure, became under enormous pressure to disown his supporters and he never did. I didn't know him then but I got to know him later and I I remember having a conversation with him, it was a sort of interview about his diaries from that period and I said to him part of your kind of appeal almost as a politician was that you were could be humorous you always tried to be charming even to internal opponents and indeed external opponents his diaries are full of sort of polite conversations with Sir Keith Joseph polite exchanges at least he was polite to fuming people like James Callahan. I, I saw Jim, and he was absolutely livid, but I was very polite to him. We had a cup of tea. I explained to him I voted against government policy on the NEC, even though I'm a member of the cabinet, because I do believe it's much healthier if people act with conviction. Jim was red-faced with anger, but he was always polite. And I said to him, look, why didn't you, given that is your style, why didn't you disown supporters who shouted down Dennis Healy because it looked terrible and he gave an interesting answer he said I remember it vividly something almost like this he said look I was being vidified in the media I was being attacked by many Labour MPs including the Labour leader of the Labour party and I only had a number of supporters and they were trying to trap me into disowning them too and i say all that as a uh, merely an observation i don't know what jeremy corbyn is thinking about this whole terrible dark saga but i suspect a part of it is similar to his hero tony ben that he wherever he goes feels vilified by the media the commentators broadcasters who they he thinks follows with some accuracy the views of say the columnists of the times or whatever all of whom go for him and the dynamic now is those who dote on him he is being asked to disown too so i make merely make that observation that that is his thinking i'm not gonna get into whether that means he's anti-Semitic or not, but I bet that is part of his thinking. And that explains a reluctance. He's already had to lose Ken Livingstone when he lost Livingstone. Uh, Livingstone was about the only articulate defender of Corbyn on the media. He's had to suspend, or the mechanisms have had to suspend, other as of his prominent supporters. He regards creating this mass membership party as his greatest creation and yet it is being undermined by this furore. And it was also kind of interesting to note for me, when I used to go sometimes as a student to see someone like Tony Benn speak, he was brilliant and mesmerising and funny, and yet a part of his audience was angry and humourless, and not necessarily attractive to the wider electorate, in a way that if he had presented himself in a certain light he would have been and no doubt although this I speak from a distance has happened to some of Corbyn's followers too who have joined local Labour parties and completely thrown those who were there before all this had happened and this raises all kinds of other big issues one of which is this Corbyn has some justification in feeling that one of his achievements is to create a mass membership party. Parties are in decline in most parts of the world, membership dropping like a stone. Look at the kind of 14 octogenarians in the Conservative Party choosing a new Prime Minister. But how do you police a mass membership party? Should you police a mass membership party? Corbyn's inclination is to devolve as much power as possible to party members. But when you've got hundreds of thousands of them, that becomes almost impossible. And if some of them are anti Semitic, you need to get rid of them. But clearly, there need to be new mechanisms in place to deal with a party of that scale. The scale of the anti Semitism problem, I can't comment on. I just don't know. I hear that it's kind of refers to 0.06% of the Labour Party's membership. Some MPs are so worked up about it, it implies more. But again, it's not clear always whether they are worked up about the reaction of the leadership or the scale of the problem and the panorama problem was similarly blurred in that respect there were these powerful interviews from people who worked at the Labour Party in the very department where these allegations were being reviewed and they had left and they were in in some cases a terrible state one said that he nearly threw himself off the balcony of the Labour Party headquarters a very mild-mannered gentle figure. And yet it wasn't clear, I'm not justifying this either, but was it to do with the atmosphere of the workplace, the uh, pressures they were put under, Or was it to do with the fact that they thought they were working with an anti-Semitic leadership or a leadership that was willing to tolerate anti-Semitism? I'm not saying if they had been bullied or their lives were made hell in the workplace, that is something to feel all right about. It is, of course, terrible. It's quite wide in politics, as it can be in the media and other places. But that's a separate issue from the kind of widespread anti-Semitism issue. Anyway, those are the only observations I make because I've ceased to kind of understand uh, the weightiness of this issue. By that, I don't mean the weightiness of anti-Semitism. It is a dark, dark act of criminality, in my view, to be anti-Semitic and to express it in any shape or form. That should be a statement of the obvious. But weighing up the scale of it, whether it's wider, whether social media has distorted the whole thing and that some vile tweets, and I know there are many vile tweets, I look at them sometimes, uh, whether they are all Labour Party members uh, attacking people like Margaret Hodge, some Jewish columnists and so on, or whether they are vile anti-Semites from across the sphere, I don't know. But the political problem is complicated. There is, it seems to me, one way out of it for them, which is to make it wholly the subject of an independent review because measuring this internally making judgments on ambiguous statements the livingston stuff wouldn't necessarily hold up in a court of law for example about whether he was an anti-semite give it to an independent panel to sort out i think that would be one way they could get through some of this but as i say it's 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 just very hard to weigh up. And when I, each time I listen to someone very carefully, like those three Labour peers who uh, resigned recently over it, and one of them was interviewed on Newsnight, and he just said he had read this stuff in the newspapers. Social media was terrible. But what you read in the newspapers, I read it so carefully, is this Williamson affair rages on social media the twitter is terrible but it's not clear how much of it is to do with these members and on we go similarly with panorama so we're going to get very clear precise revelations of who these anti-semites are where are they But it was, again, about process, whether the leader was intervening. Of course, if a leader doesn't intervene, people say, what's Corbyn doing about it? He seems to be keeping out of it. When he does intervene, it's interfering in a grotesque way. It's all, it is complicated. But what is absolutely clear, it is being calamitous for Labour as an image. And it is still there. And that is a political failure, because even if a leader thinks it's unjust, even if a leader, and I don't know this, but I think like Tony uh, Corbyn thinks he's being asked to turn on some of his own unfairly. The political issue has to be addressed and in a way that convinces people some kind of resolution has been reached. So everything is fluid. The Conservative Party enters a period with a new leader and prime minister, which has already triggered a former prime minister, John Major, to threaten to take that prime minister to court if he pursues a no deal. This is epic politics. And the Labour Party is in a kind of renewed period of bewildered trauma, Unable to grasp the clear opportunities that a government in a brexit induced crisis is in, and politics therefore is in a strange place but one in which an attempt to form a new party failed catastrophically as I kind of as one of, I've got many predictions wrong, but I sense the day that was launched to great Cheers in the media and elsewhere, oh look at them, they're so nice, they're doing a new kind of politics, it's great. But only new parties can sustain themselves when built on a clearly defined set of ideas and values and policies that arise from them. And although they tried that centre power, or Change UK, they were called. They tried to learn the lessons of the SDP. In fact, they failed to learn what the SDP got right, which was a clear sense of where they stood in the uh, political battleground, the values that they took to form the party, and the policies that arose from them. Where they disagreed, the big figures in the SDP was how to deal with the Liberals and that kind of thing, and that is a thorny issue for any new party and um, one of the lessons of that uh, period now and indeed with the sdp is that the liberals aren't just going to go away and even after their own traumas with the coalition they haven't really thought through what it was that led to some of the for them dangerous moves in that coalition what kind of party are they are they kind of economic liberals that make them close to the likes of George Osborne and David Cameron or are they closer to the sort of social democrat inclinations of previous leaders like Charles Kennedy David Steele going all the way back to the most radical of the lot Lloyd George they haven't really had that post-coalition introspective debate maybe because they were virtually wiped out and there weren't any of them around to hold it but they are back and they are resilient And any new party has to work that one through. And it's difficult and arduous and unglamorous. But merely holding jolly press conferences where you say you're going to do things differently and politics is broken is easy and enticing and intoxicating for about 24 hours and then you're in trouble. Anyway, God, there's so much, so much going on. Uh, Next time I'm here, there'll be a new Prime Minister. So there'll be more to talk about but thanks so much for listening this time and just a reminder again edinburgh festival rock and roll politics live every day from august the 12th to august the 24th then back in london at king's place on september the 11th and thank you so much for listening my pledge is to do another one very soon after boris johnson i assume it's him becomes the next prime minister